What if I told you that I had a flat tire on my car the other day? That happens, of course. I was lucky. I was at home, and I had a can with some gas in it. I had I actually had a can of gas on hand, and so I put the gas that I had in the tank. I had a flat tire, and I put the gas in the tank. But you know what? It didn't fix the problem. I still had a flat tire. Someone says, "What are you, what are you talking about, man? Are you crazy? That putting gas in the tank is not going to fix a flat tire." What do you mean? What do you, you mean to tell me that gas is not important? That gasoline in an automobile tank is not important? Well, yes, it's important, but it can't do everything. Having gas in your tank can't fi- fix a flat tire, right? Now that's a bizarre, that would be a bizarre conversation, wouldn't it? If someone actually said something like that. But I want to use that little story to illustrate the point that we want to emphasize in our lesson this morning. This morning we want to talk about faith. Faith in God. Certainly faith is essential. We know that that's true. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 it says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, And he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so there's not anybody who can deny the importance of faith. But in our lesson this morning, we want to point out that while faith is essential, faith has certain limitations. There are some things that faith can't do. Just like gas in a car tank is essential, but there's some things it can't do. It can't fix a flat tire, for instance. So also is it true spiritually that faith is absolutely critical, vital, and essential, but faith has its limitations. There are some things that faith can't and won't do. That will be our study for a few moments this morning. We want to say thanks to everyone who is here. We appreciate your presence very much. We have a number of visitors today. We're glad that you've come. We want you to know that. We hope that we can make you feel welcome here at College View, and we hope that you'll come back every time you have a chance to be here. By all means, if you have any questions at all, if we can help with your study of God's Word, if there's something that we can provide to assist in your study, please let us know. We'd be glad to to help out. Here at College View, we're trying very hard to do Bible things in Bible ways. We're trying to imitate the church that we read about in the pages of our New Testament. We want to be a church like that one that was established in the first century. And therefore, we're trying to have Bible authority, book, chapter, and verse kind of authority for everything we do here. So... If you were to ask, why are you doing that? And why are you doing it that way? It would be our intention to be able to give you a Bible answer to those kinds of questions. If you have them, please ask. Thanks again to everyone for being here. We appreciate your presence very much. Let's talk about faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But faith has some limitations. Let me explain to you some of what I mean by that. For instance, faith cannot alter reality. Think about that for a minute. My faith, or your faith, or anybody else's faith for that matter, just because you believe something to be so, doesn't make it so. You may have a very strong belief that something is true, but no matter how much you believe it, it doesn't necessarily make it be true. I want to use as an illustration of that principle the story that Britt read for us earlier from the life of Jacob concerning his sons, and in particular his son Joseph. You remember the story. Jacob had 12 sons, 
But he, he made a pretty dramatic mistake in showing real favoritism toward one, Joseph. There's no doubt that Joseph was the favored son of his father. He showed that partiality. The brothers were very envious and jealous of Joseph. And so one day when they were out in the field, they caught him and they sold him into slavery. He had a unique coat that his father had given him, that coat of many colors. And so the brothers took that coat and they stained it with animal blood. They took it back to their father. And notice in this text from Genesis chapter 37, this is what we found, they said, know whether it is thy son's coat or not. In other words, is this Joseph's coat? Well, Jacob's going to recognize that coat immediately, isn't it? Isn't he? And he says, it is. It's my son's coat, an evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. So Jacob came to the firm conclusion he really believed that Joseph was dead, that he'd been killed by a wild beast in the field. He was absolutely persuaded that that was the truth. So what did he do? He, he proceeded to mourn bitterly for the loss of his son. He rent his clothes. He put sackcloth upon his loins. He mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Let me ask you something here. Did Jacob believe that Joseph was dead? Absolutely. He believed it with all his heart, didn't he? Did it make it so? No. It wasn't true. He wasn't dead. He was down in Egypt. He was serving as a slave in Potiphar's household down in Egypt. So, we're using this to illustrate a point. You can believe something to be very true. You can be very committed to it. You can be completely convinced that a thing is right and true. That does not make it so. That's what we're saying. Faith does not alter the reality of things. You can believe something to be so. It doesn't make it so. You know, Jacob also illustrates the flip side of this. In this case... He believed something was true that wasn't true. Now, he believed Joseph was dead and he wasn't, but he really believed it. So he believed something that wasn't true, but he really believed it. Later, when the brothers had been reunited with Joseph down in Egypt, and we won't go take time to, to talk about all of that story, but you remember later on, the brothers were reunited with Joseph in Egypt and they returned home. It says they went up, this is chapter 45, beginning verse 25, they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan and to Jacob their father and told him, saying, Jacob is yet alive and he is a governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted for he believed them not. Now here's the case. Well, here's something that's true. Jacob is, or Joseph is alive, rather. And Jacob says, I'm not going to believe it. I can't believe it. And so here's the case of something that was true, but he believed it was not true and he wouldn't accept it. All of that, we're saying all of that to illustrate our point that believing something, your faith regarding something, does not make it so. Now, let me talk for a minute about a couple of applications of that in our day and time. We're talking about people today, religiously and spiritually. What do people sometimes say? Well, think about folks who discuss their salvation, their, their status with God. What will they say? I know I'm saved. I'm completely convinced that I'm saved. Why? Because I've got this feeling in my heart. I've had people tell me, you probably have too, I've had people say things like, I wouldn't trade the feeling i got in my heart for a whole stack of Bibles. I know I feel saved. Well, think about that for me. We just illustrated from the story of Jacob and Joseph that believing a thing is so does not make it so. 
And yet there are people who will trust their soul's salvation to a feeling, to what they believe without verification of it from the Word of God. Or someone will say something like this. Uh, I, I had a fella more than once, but I can remember one fellow in particular who had formerly been a gospel preacher. He had left his wife and married another woman. And he came to me trying to justify what he had done. He was unscripturally married to a second wife. He had no right to her. You know what he said? I know that God wants me to be happy. I'm convinced that this is all right because God really wants me to be happy. I know he does. And so what he was doing there is he was, he was basing his, his confidence in a feeling. He believed it to be so. He was willing to argue the case with me, but it was all based upon how he felt about a thing. How you feel about something, your belief, your faith, your confidence in something does not make it so. That's what we're trying to illustrate here. What does make something true? In John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus said, You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. It's very important for us to base our faith not on some subjective feeling, not just our own think-sos or opinions, but upon the truth that is found in the Word of God. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. There's the truth. That's what you've got to base your faith upon. All of this idea of, uh, I believe or I think so is a little is little more than wishing or hoping something to be true. I read a quote recently where a fellow said there's more evidence um, for the the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny than there is for the faith that some people have religiously. They haven't based it upon anything substantial. It's just a feeling. And so the first thing that we want to stress about faith, as we're saying faith has limitations, and one of those limitations is that faith cannot alter the reality of things. No matter how strong you believe something, that doesn't make it so. All right? Another thing that faith can't do is that faith by itself cannot change anything. What would you say to a person who makes the argument, I believe, I believe, I firmly believe that daily exercise improves your physical health? I believe that. Is anybody here who doubts that? That regular exercise can improve your physical health? Well, sure. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how any right-thinking person would deny that, but unless I begin to put that into practice, then my belief in it is not worth anything. Right? I may believe that physical exercise is beneficial to my health, but unless I get busy doing some exercise, then I gain no benefit from that. You see what I'm saying? Faith by itself doesn't change anything. The same is true religiously and spiritually in regards to faith and works of obedience. Faith must produce action. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, we see one of just a, a, a number of passages in the Scriptures that we could emphasize that reference the need for faith to be linked with obedience, with action, with responding to the Lord's commands. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, beginning... It says, though he were a son, talking about Jesus, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to whom? To all those who obey him. Faith must be coupled with works. Recently, we had a whole sermon on James chapter 2, that very 
powerful passage that links faith and works. Do you remember that? One of the passages that we highlighted there was James chapter 2, verse 17. says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. We've got to be able, we've got to be willing to couple acts of obedience with our faith because faith just by itself doesn't change anything. I'll tell you another area in which faith is limited and that is that faith cannot force a person to respond. Think about that. Just because you believe something doesn't mean that you'll necessarily act. Your faith will not force you to act upon what you believe. Sometimes when we're talking to people who advocate the position of salvation by faith only, if we try to press them on this point, they will say something like that if a person really has faith, then he will obey. But that's not necessarily so. There are some people who can have absolute faith but never get around to doing anything about it. Uh, faith cannot... Faith can motivate us, but it can't overpower us. It can't force us into action. Other other factors may come into play. I'll give you an, uh, an real-world example of what we're talking about here. For instance, is there anybody today, and I don't think it was necessarily so years ago, but is there anybody today, with all the information that is available, is there anybody who denies that smoking cigarettes has a very strong link to cancer. Well, nobody denies that. How can you deny that? The evidence is abundant. Logic says, yes, smoking cigarettes is linked to cancer. Well, just because they believe that to be true, does everyone who believes that stop smoking cigarettes? No. There are plenty of people still smoking cigarettes who say, I know this cigarette... It's going to kill me, and they keep on smoking. So what we're saying there, their belief of that link between smoking and cancer, even though they believe it, doesn't necessarily force them to stop smoking. Logic says one thing, but there are other forces that override. Well, one of those forces that may override is the addictive nature of nicotine that's in the cigarette smoke, right? And so while they may believe something to be true, it doesn't force them to make any changes. The same is true spiritually. Look in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, we have an episode where Jesus healed a man who was blind. You may remember that story. But there were Jews who at this point were very much against Jesus. They did not believe. And it says in John 9, beginning verse 18, they called the parents of him that had received his sight, and they asked them, saying, Is this your son who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. They didn't tell the truth there, did they? They knew that Jesus had done this. These words, it says, spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. You see that? So here's some people who believed. I mean, they had strong reason to believe. Their son, born blind, could now see. What a miracle. And they knew it had happened. And, so, and they knew Jesus was the one who performed that miracle. But they wouldn't confess Jesus. Their fear of the reaction of the, of the powerful Jews was stronger than 
their belief in Jesus to confess Him as the Son of God. And so fear might be, you see what we're saying? Faith can't force you to do something. In this case, the faith of these parents didn't force them to confess Jesus. Their fear was stronger. It overruled. I'll give you another example in John chapter 12, beginning verse 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Look at that. Even among those ruling Jews, many believed, it says, but they wouldn't confess him. Why? Because their desire for the praise of men was stronger than their love and faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we should stop here to consider whether that might be the case with us. Uh, we're expected to confess our faith in the Lord Jesus, both in word and in deed. But it may be so that we either fear what men may do to us if we make that confession, or we just really have a strong desire to stay in their good stead. And so because of fear or our desire to have praise of men, we might refuse to confess our faith in Jesus. Faith is one thing, and it's a necessary thing, but faith won't force us to do something that we're not willing to do. Other factors may be stronger and override the faith that we have. Of course, that's a sad situation any time it develops, but that's what we're talking about here this morning. I'll give you one other example. In Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, beginning verse 34, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I'm, I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foe shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I want to tell you, I think we see all kinds of evidence of this in our day and time. People who believe in Jesus, but their love of family is stronger than their love of the Lord. And even though they have faith, they won't act upon their faith because they're afraid that it might cause some alienation between them and some of their beloved family members. Jesus said, those who have that outlook are not worthy of Him. Now, even if you're a believer, but you let your family come between you and doing the right thing, and Jesus said, that puts you in a terrible predicament spiritually. He says, those who do that are not worthy of Me. Our point here is, that faith, while absolutely important, can't force a person to do something. You've got to, you've got to have enough faith that it'll come, overcome all the obstacles that might be present to get you to do what you should do in obedience to the Lord. Finally, let me suggest to you that faith cannot take the place of anything else. Now, what do we mean by that? Certainly, again, we're stressing the essentiality of faith, but faith can provide no substitute for other things that God requires. For instance, in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, it says, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And so, we've got to have enough faith that it will cause us to repent. Repentance, of course, involves sorrow for sin, more than mere sorrow, though, a change of heart about sin, a turning away from sin, and a turning to God, a change of heart that leads to a change in actions. Now, make application of our principle that we're discussing in our lesson this morning. Faith has its limitations. Here's a person who believes completely, has great confidence in God's love and mercy. I just believe that God is a loving and merciful God. You ever heard someone say that? 
Are they right when they say that? Absolutely, God is a loving and merciful God. I, I, I don't know how He could more completely demonstrate that to us than He has in particular in the giving of His own Son to be a sacrifice for our sins. God is surely a loving and merciful God. But I want to tell you, there are some people who say that, and what they mean when they say that is that God is so loving and so merciful that He'll overlook the sin that I'm unwilling to repent of. I'm engaged in this certain activity, and I know when I read my Bible that the Bible condemns that activity. I know it's described as sinful in the Word of God. But I just believe that God is such a good and loving and merciful God, He'll forgive me anyway. And what, is it? What, what is the thing that you're doing that you know you should quit doing, but you haven't quit yet? Uh, here's a guy who... Uh, maybe has a terrible temper. He flies off the handle all the time. He yells at his wife and his children. He, he just, I mean, you're, you're, you're afraid to say anything to him for fear that you may set him off. And he knows that he needs to change that about himself. And he hadn't done it yet. Well, why hadn't he? Because he believes that God is such a loving, merciful God. He understands and he'll, he'll overlook that. What's your basis? What's your basis for that kind of confidence? Here's a guy who likes to drink his alcohol. Uh, he tries hard not to drink too much to where he actually becomes roaring drunk. He does, from time to time, get real drunk. But he tries not to. But he sure does love to drink his beer. And I, he says, I know I shouldn't do that. But I, I, just, I just believe God will forgive me for that. God's a loving, merciful God. He'll overlook that. Really? You think so? What's the basis for your confidence in that? Well, The point that we're making here is that... that Faith, although very important, does not substitute for other things. Your faith in God's love and mercy is very important. But it won't substitute for you repenting of your sins and really making the necessary changes that you need to make in your life. Romans chapter 6, beginning verse 3. Paul said, Know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We can have tremendous trust in God's power to say, I believe that God can save me. He can save me any way He chooses to save me. He might choose to save me like the thief on the cross. Can you prove that the thief on the cross was baptized? We've studied that before, haven't we? It doesn't really matter whether we can prove it or not. He was in a completely different circumstance than we are. I believe that God could save me like He saved the thief on the cross. I have great confidence in that. I completely believe that. I want to tell you, you can have all the faith in, in God's power to save that you want. Certainly God's a powerful God. But that won't be a substitute for doing what He clearly said we must do, including being baptized for the remission of sins. Here in this text in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul is saying that through baptism we have contact with the blood of Christ and it is the way in which we gain the benefit of the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. You can believe that God will save you in different ways if you want to, but that doesn't make it so. Faith in those things is not a substitute for actually doing what the Bible says you must do in order to be saved. So the point of our lesson this morning is a very simple one. Nobody is denying how important faith is. Faith is absolutely essential, but faith has limitations. Faith won't alter how things really are. 
faith by itself won't change anything. Faith won't, even though you have faith, it won't force you to do what you must do. Faith won't take or sub, take the place of our substitute for any of the other things that God demands us to do. What's your situation this morning? My guess, my guess is that the vast majority, if not every single person of accountable age who is in our assembly this morning, has faith in God. That's good. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But we, we want you to understand that faith has limitations. It won't do everything that needs to be done. And if it is so that this morning your faith in God has not led you to obey that simple gospel plan of salvation, we urge you to make that decision without delay. Upon hearing and believing, you must repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized for the remission of sin. If you've never done that, we hope you'll make that decision without delay. If you're a Christian already, but you've been unwilling to put aside some of the sinful things that you've been doing, you haven't really repented, we beg you to make that decision, to repent, to come back to God, confessing and praying for forgiveness. If we can help in that, we're ready to do so. Let us know how we can help while we stand and sing this song.